This morning is taken from Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 to 13. The word reads, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to, feel, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a call, the fall of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus at the temple. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is the word of God. Dear God, I thank you for Pastor Robin. Thank you that he serves you wholeheartedly with such a big heart. He loves you and loves people. And I thank you for the word that he'll bring to us this morning. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord. Amen. The only problem with using tech is sometimes it just goes kaflui on you. There we go. That's a technical term, by the way, for those of you who aren't aware. Kaflui is a, is a highly technical term. And we'll get there eventually. There we go. Uh, so I grew up in the UK <clears throat> in the 1960s. And um, like lots of boys my age, I grew up watching all kinds of World War II shows on television, movies, you know, TV shows, um, The Great Escape, The Cruel Sea, Patton, you know. A lot of these shows had a very common um, image in them, sometimes in the middle, sometimes towards the end. Um, it was the um, liberation of some great city, usually Paris, actually, um, with tanks rolling down the Champs-Élysées, covered in flowers and people, you know, waving everywhere. So it's, a, it's actually a pretty common image in a world that seems to be perpetually at war. We saw the same images in the Gulf Wars. We saw the same images quite recently in 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimea, which just goes to show how ambivalent these kinds of images are. Um, <clears throat> so 
And there's been great, similar images in great cities around the world for thousands of years as those who are seen as liberators were welcomed by the citizens, or at least some of the citizens. And there were similar scenes in Jerusalem as Jesus entered at the beginning of what was going to be the last week of his life. Now, eight of the 28 chapters of Matthew have to do with the last week of Jesus' life. That's more than a quarter of the entire book. Um, Somebody once described the Gospels as death narratives with extended introductions, which is actually not a bad description. And in Matthew, that death narrative starts at chapter 21. And, um, and that's just where Matthew changes gears from Jesus' ministry in the towns and villages of Galilee and Judea to his confrontation with the authorities in Jerusalem. Now, in the, in the early chapters of his gospel, Matthew pulls in Old Testament references to explain, explain where the story is going to go. And now he does the same again. In the first 13 verses of chapter 21, there are four Old Testament references that actually highlight the conflicting visions that were in play, the visions, that, conflicting visions that were at work that morning in Jerusalem. And it's generally accepted that when the New Testament quotes um, an Old Testament reference, you actually need to think about the whole context of that reference, not just that line. In the same way as we will quote a line from a song, and then the entire song comes into your head, people, would, people quote a reference, and the entire reference comes. So I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture from the Old Testament um, this morning as we pull these, these texts into our conversation. So what the crowd was shouting in Matthew 21 is actually a quote from Psalm 118, 26. And earlier in Psalm 118, it says this, The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And I think there's little doubt that the crowd that morning saw Jesus as the one who had come to set them free, to allow them to look in triumph on their enemies, to cut off the nations that surrounded them on every side. They had had enough of this oppressive rule by heathens. It was time for God to step in and make a difference. And here was a man to do it. Now was the time for him to transform this grassroots following that he had into a powerful political or maybe even a military force and to free them from the yoke of the Romans. In Matthew 21, 9, the expression they use Hosanna means save. It had become a term of praise, but it still meant save. 
Psalm 118, 25 and 26 says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the psalm goes on to describe exactly what happened in Matthew 21. The psalm goes on to say, with branches in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. It's like the people that morning were working from a script. They thought they knew the script by heart and they played out their parts well. But what did they see that morning? In the movie, Life is Beautiful, two friends are traveling through Italy during the time of the dictator Mussolini. The brakes on their car fail as they're going down a hill towards a village. The village is all decked out in flags and the streets are full of people. But they're running down this hill into this village and there's no way they can stop. The car's going faster and faster and faster. So one of the guys stands up in the car and goes, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. The people don't hear him. In fact, they cheer all the louder. Why? Well, Mussolini was due to pass that way that day, which is why the village was all decked out in flags and everybody was out in the streets. So they see a car racing towards them and somebody standing up in the seat going like this. So what did he see? They saw what they expected to see. They saw Mussolini driving towards them, giving the fascist salute. The reality was a Jewish waiter standing up in the car telling them to get out of the way. What the crowd in Jerusalem wanted to see that morning was a conquering hero. So that's what they saw. That was their vision of Jesus. Jesus knew what the crowd would expect. So he actually went to great lengths to counteract it. He deliberately acted out a different script from the one that the crowd had prepared. And if they'd been paying attention, they would have noticed Central to Jesus' script was the fact that he was entering Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse or even a mule. We call this Palm Sunday and refer to the event as the triumphal entry, but that might just reveal how much we've actually bought into the crowd's vision. Might be better called Donkey Sunday. That doesn't sound quite so good, does it? Uh, The peaceful entry. Because Matthew explicitly refers to Zechariah 9 to explain what Jesus is doing. He doesn't have to explain the actions of the crowds. They're transparent, but Jesus' actions need to be explained. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a script that Jesus is working from. On the surface, it's really similar to the crowd script. There's still a king entering Jerusalem. There's still a festival atmosphere, but there's a profound difference. This script 
doesn't talk of breaking the enemy militarily or politically. It talks of removing war from Jerusalem. It speaks of the king coming in gentleness to bring righteousness and salvation, to break the battle bowl. <clears throat> and more importantly, it isn't just focused on Jerusalem or even on Judea. It says he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he saw himself as a prince of peace. Come to proclaim peace to all of mankind. The crowd wanted him to deal with evil by attacking and defeating what they could see as its local expression, the oppressive Roman rule. But Jesus had a much bigger agenda than that. He was going to strike at the very root of evil itself by taking it upon himself. So one event, two interpretations. The crowd's interpretation was driven by their own needs. So they were blind to what Jesus was laying out for them in the way that he entered Jerusalem. They literally lacked vision. They couldn't see what was before them. Because they're, they were so caught up with their own expectations. And the Lord is constantly bringing events before us. Taking us into situations that demand a response. The challenge is to see them the way the Lord sees them. It may be tempting to see a particular situation as a large response to our needs. But perhaps, just perhaps, we're actually missing the point. It was only in hindsight that Matthew understood what was happening that morning and put it into his gospel. And it's very easy for us, with 2,000 years of hindsight, to sit in judgment on the people in the gospels. But the reality is, if we had been in the crowd that morning, we would probably have missed the point too. I don't want that to happen now. I want us to see events from Jesus' point of view. I want us to be a congregation, a community that has vision, that sees what God is doing. And uses that to get in line with what God is doing. If we're going to do that, our first question has to be, what are you doing here, God? Not, what do I think is happening here? Or, how does this fit in with my preconceived ideas of what needs to happen? We need discernment. To understand the times and to understand what is God is doing. And... We're having a meeting after this service about the pastoral search. We need discernment to identify what it is God is calling us to as a community, to identify the process, to identify who or whatever God is calling us to do uh, in terms of calling a pastor. 
It's very easy to get caught up with what we want to see happen, what our needs are, what would meet our needs. The question we need to be asking is, what is God doing here in this community? And what is he calling us to do in terms of calling leadership, whatever, that helps us fit in with that? The second pair of conflicting visions is not about Jesus, it's about the people. After entering the city, Jesus went and cleansed the temple. During that event, he quotes two Old Testament passages. One is from Isaiah 56, the other is from Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. This is Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incest to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. That's pretty strong stuff. Of course, it doesn't apply to us, right? No? Because the issue isn't pri- here isn't primarily idolatry, although that's in there. The issue is whether we allow our faith to reach the crevices of our lives and change the way we live. Does it change our character or does it just make us more comfortable? Because we can use Christianity for many things, right? Those Jeremiah was called to preach to were using their faith as an insurance policy. Do all the right things, say all the right things, and you're covered. As it says, the people came into the house of the Lord and said, we are safe. God's response is, oh, no, you're not. Because faith is more than just an insurance policy. There's a line in a song by Matt Redman that says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. Generation ago, when I was younger, uh, Annie Herring of the second chapter of Acts wrote a line in one of her songs to the Lord saying, she says to the Lord, I've used you to sing my songs. And we can use Christianity as a pop, sorry, as a prop to our identity. The church can become an environment where we feel comfortable and successful and we get positive strokes from people for what we do, what we say. When we were preparing to go to Pakistan in 1988, a pastor asked me why I was planning on serving overseas. And he said, don't give me all the theological reasons. I know that you know those. 
What are your personal reasons? And I had to admit that part of my motivation for going overseas was because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make, feel that my life had counted for something. That's not really a bad thing. But it was something that was focused on me and my need for affirmation rather than on the Lord's vision for my life. I know how tempting it can be to use our service for the Lord to gain. To, I know how tempting it can be to use my, I'll speak for myself, to use my service for the Lord to gain points for myself rather than to humbly serve those that God has called me to. The issue is, again, that we allow our own needs to blind us to what Jesus' vision is. Very few of us come to the Lord out of pure motives. Part of the process of growth is learning to replace our selfish motives with godly ones. Right? You know? We'd all like to say we came, we came to the Lord, we came to faith because of, you know, we were just, you know, overwhelmed by the love and truth of the gospel. But actually, there's often a whole bunch of other reasons why we came to faith. And then the process of growing in, in the Lord is learning to bring our motives in line with, Lord, with the Lord rather than our own needs. God didn't just save us for our own benefit. I think C.S. Lewis has it right when he says that joy is a byproduct of something else. If you seek after joy, you will never find it. The joy is something that you, you, you glimpse at the corner of your eyes. You're focusing on something else. It's only as you forget about seeking joy and fulfillment that you actually find them. And God saved us. Not primarily for joy and fulfillment, but to be conformed into his likeness. And as that happens, then we find joy and fulfillment as a byproduct. He saved us to make us good, not just forgiven. And he saved us to do good and to find fulfillment in that. And that's what the other reference that Jesus quotes refers to. Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the, best, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. This is Jesus' vision for us. We are to be a community that lives rightly, that maintains justice and does what is right. We're not saved by doing good, but we are saved to do good. And we're to be a community that includes the outsider. Foreigners weren't allowed into the temple. That was reserved for Jews. There was actually a wall marking off the extent to which foreigners could be, as close as foreigners could get to the temple. And there was a sign on it that said in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Okay, just checking with the expert. Um, <laughs> that said, any non-Jew who passes this point is responsible for his own death. Not exactly seeker sensitive. Um, but yeah, foreigners were not allowed into the temple. But here God says that foreigners will be included in the community of God. That includes all of us. There are no barriers of birth. Eunuchs were banned too. Even Jewish eunuchs weren't allowed into the temple. That reflects the Old Testament idea that strange things couldn't come into God's presence. Things that were strange were usually classed as unclean and therefore a risk about the Lord breaking out against his people. So you can see that in the food laws. That's a whole other study. But so fish without scales are banned because they're not really fish. Um, amongst you know, herbivores, only animals that both split the hoof and chew the cud are allowed because if they only do one or the other, then they're not you know, fully that category. So there's, there's categories. If you don't fully fit into the category, then you're excluded from the presence of the Lord. So it says, I, just, I actually just read this. This week, in my readings, in Deuteronomy, it says that men who have been emasculated don't fit in the category of being pop- proper men and therefore are not allowed into the presence of the Lord. I didn't actually get my undergrad degree until in my 30s. <laughs> and so um, on an extended break back from Pakistan, I went back to school and I finished my undergrad degree in anthropology and linguistics. So I was older than a bunch of people there. Um, and I had a friend at that point um, whose name was, was Leah. But it used to be Len because she'd gone through a sex change operation. And she was an outcast in many ways, even on a university campus, which everybody's all, all liberal and stuff like that. People would snigger and make jokes behind her back. Women were uncomfortable, uncomfortable with her using the ladies' room. But something in me felt for her in her isolation. And since we, since we shared some classes together, we became friends. Whatever she used to be, I chose to relate to her as I found her. Even though some of my friends didn't really approve of that, my Christian friends. 
But Isaiah 56, 4 and 5 says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who chooses what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. God has a place in his family for the strange and the unusual. Even for those like Leah that the Bible would consider a eunuch. So these were the things on Jesus' mind that day. Defeating evil. But not by using any of the world's means. He came as a prince of peace to being priest for all creation, not just to deal with the present problems of the crowd. And that's still number one on his agenda. He will meet our needs. That's usually as a byproduct of doing his will. His primary goal and ours, if we are to line up with his vision, is the liberation of planet Earth. It's a much bigger goal. Secondly, redirecting God's people to become the inclusive community of salvation that he'd always planned for it to be. Not the shrunken thing that we sometimes make it. I remember one time when someone uh, asked me for a Bible. And a friend who knew this guy doubted his motives. He said he was kind of sleazy, was involved in some, um, some unsavory stuff. But what does that have to do with anything? Right? Jesus is out to defeat the evil in his life the same way as he's out to defeat the evil in my life. There's a place in God's family for everyone. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, sleazebag or saint, anyone who will come to him and receive his salvation. These are the things that were on Jesus' mind that day as he entered Jerusalem. May they be on our minds this week as we reflect on his coming for us. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, yeah, we may not like Annie Herring have used you to sing our songs, but yeah, the temptation, we do that. We use our faith in you sometimes to gratify ourselves, to establish our own sense of identity, all kinds of things, Lord. When, as Matt Redman says, it's actually about you. It's not about us. Lord, help us this week to cut ourselves free from the, the conflicting visions that we have of, of who you are and what you came to do in our lives. Help us, Lord, to get in line with your vision for who for, for, what, for what we're supposed to be doing here, serving you, doing good, walking in righteousness, loving the outcast and the outsider. And Lord, give us grace to walk in that, we pray. Amen.